It's Thursday, July 22nd, from The Recount and iHeartRadio. This is the News Items Podcast, bringing you analysis based on my newsletter, News Items. In the coming weeks, we'll air a series of interviews with entrepreneurs, how they came up with the idea for their businesses, how they built those businesses, what it feels like or what it felt like when things went wrong, and how they righted the course. To kick it off, I spoke with my cousin, Jonathan Bush. In 1997, Jonathan co-founded Athena Women's Health with a man named Todd Park. The company began as a women's health and birthing clinic in California. As his first company showed signs of stalling out, John and Todd realized they could use the online systems they'd built for Athena Women's Health as the foundation for a new company, a cloud-based services provider for medical practices. So they dropped the women's and became simply Athena Health. Jonathan led Athena Health for over two decades, growing it into a company with a $6 billion market cap and 5,000 employees. The company went public in 2007. Then, in 2018, he faced an entrepreneur's worst nightmare, an activist investor intent on forcing a sale. In the power struggle that ensued, Jonathan was forced out of the company he had built. Today, we're talking to him about what it was like to build the first company, its success, and what it was like to lose control of it. And finally, we talked to him about the creation of his new healthcare startup, which is called Zeus. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. It's good to see you again. It's nice to be seen by you, John. (laughs) So you graduated from Wesleyan. You worked as an EMT at the New Orleans Health Department, later trained as a medic, and use your trauma experience as a paramedic to support U.S. evacuation capabilities during Operation Desert Storm. And then you went to Booz Allen Hamilton, where you met your future business partner, Todd Park. How did your conversations with Todd lead to the creation of Athena Women's Health? Yeah, I was assigned to be Todd Park's mentor, which was ironic because Todd was better than me at everything. Uh, (laughs) And so how would I mentor this guy who was there when I got there and there when I left? And did better work the whole time, both at a strategic high level and at a detail level. But he didn't know that you could use a car service after 8 p.m. And he didn't know that you could actually launder your underwear rather than buy new three packs at Macy's. (laughs) So I I sort of became a life coach of this guy rather than a mentor on uh, the work front and got to work with him, which was a great rush. He's just brilliant and positive and sort of almost Truman Show-esque in his genuine belief in the goodness to be found in ideas and people. So we got going on what the client should have done or what we would do if we were the client. And we got the idea that instead of the health plan trying to mock being a provider badly, maybe the provider, the doctor should take on some health plan-like characteristics. Maybe they could grab just one bundle of care that was highly variable, highly expensive and say, look, I'll guarantee a number. You just let me handle it any way you want. And we got excited about that. My then wife was considering being a midwife and we studied different areas and realized that there was enormous variability in maternity care and that obviously you get a baby at the end. So nobody's terribly upset with the service, but it could go better. It could be more human. And so we decided we could help doctors essentially insure their own product. And we created what later became a global episodic case rate concept for maternity care. We couldn't raise enough money to 
actually underwrite it as a, you know, literally insurance underwrite it. So we went to the insurance company and said, give us full latitude to do whatever we need to do and we'll split half the savings with you. And that's how we got started. How did you sort of focus it so that you didn't have to inevitably run afoul of this regulation and that set of relationships and so on and so forth? Well, uh, what we did was we did run afoul of all of those things, <laughs> but, but we thought we were narrowing because we said, yes, we're business geniuses and we know that these companies bite off more than they can chew and then they get afoul of relationships and regulations. So we'll only do maternity care. And so maybe by doing that, our inevitable death was slightly slower than it would have been if we had taken on more. And as we died, we were able to find a way out of the woods. You know, we were able to find something that was even narrower still that we could live with, that we could survive doing. And that's what happened is as we declined into the treetops with this maternity care concept, you know, we found layer upon layer of problem that some of them were uniquely our incompetence, of course, but some of them were shared by lots of doctors and, and providers and entrepreneurs. And uh, a lot of it was just even knowing whether people are covered and what their coverage is. This was astonishing to me that that wasn't just a known, but that, you know, Medicaid rolls turn over uh, 100% a year. So, you, you know, you have someone shows up with a card today and in a year they won't be covered on average. All kinds of problems, it, connectivity to be able to figure out whether their deductible has been met. All kinds of things were just insanely complicated and regulated. And so as we peeled away at this, Todd's younger brother, Ed, joined us right away, at least in summers at first, and he was the president of the Harvard Computer Science Club. And, uh, you know, he thought we should solve all these problems on a website that all of our workers could see. I wasn't really sure what a website was at the time, but we thought, sure, why not? You know, and that website took on more and more and more life as we added more and more to it. And soon it became a read-write website, not just where you could look up these rules, but where you could you could put in the amount of the deposit and then it would add up the deposits and give you a deposit slip for the bank. And it would allow you to put in what care you had given and it would translate the care into codes that you would have to use. Uh, it just kept on sort of agile-like, getting thicker and thicker and thicker to where on the day we realized that our business was going under, the feature set of this website had actually reached a level that it kind of was a lily pad we could jump to and we could build a company on that work. And we made the decision to keep the same company so that our angel investors, many of whom are <laughs> relatives of ours, would be <laughs> kept whole, which hurt us a little bit, but we did great. And we narrowed again from all of healthcare to all of maternity care, from all of maternity care to just getting maternity care paid for. Uh, and then we could broaden again. Then we started to broaden into other specialties, getting it paid for in other states. And then we started getting into medical records and then patient communication. And we kept layering on newer skin or, or, or you know, compost on top of the garden. And it kept diversifying um, to the point where, you know, on the day I got fired, I think it was about one in every 12 visits to the doctor, one in 10 were happening on AthenaNet on this single instance web app that was you know, that started at this as this website. So Athena Health grew out of the ashes of Athena Women's Health. How quickly did it grow from that point forward? I mean, was it just like riding a rocket ship or was it sort of ups and downs and sideways and forward? What it was was always up. 
and it would come in different chunks. We didn't notice because we're always working on something. There was something incredibly electrifying about you know the recurring revenue model that every time we got someone on, it kind of worked for them. They kind of liked it. And so mm-hmm. they were fine and you could actually move on to the next guy. Right. Whereas in running a practice, you're constantly going back around and, you know, Vicky doesn't want to see OB appointments anymore. She only wants to do GYN and the landlord wants to raise that. There's just lots of regular old small business stuff to running a practice or practices that when you're running a, an internet based service, you know, you just don't have to deal with. And so it just felt additive. Every time we were doing something, it was building something new, either a new customer, a new little feature, a new little widget. And that that was really, I'm surprised I don't suffer from mania. I mean, it was a real lift after sort of swirling around the drain and paddling up against the swirl <laughs> for a year and a half, two years. <laughs> and so there had to be a point where you realized this is actually successful enough that we can we could start thinking about going public. When did you start thinking about going public? That was the board, you know, the VCs, you know, when can we cash out? How quickly can we claim a liquidity event, you know, and mark this thing up? The healthcare focused guys, you know, Athena was the first really kind of big, big return for these guys in old fashioned healthcare. Mm-hmm. And so they really wanted one. They needed action beat. I really wanted to be profitable before we went. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wanted to be multi-product. We were multi-product, but we weren't quite profitable. Luckily, I, I think literally the very quarter we went public in ended with the company turning the corner. So the, the very first year after we were profitable, but we literally, you know, the very second that my two conditions were met, may, maybe a few months before, but when we knew it, we had a recurring revenue business, expenses are very clear. Then we went. I mean, did you want to go public at all? Yes. You know, I I come from a family of, I actually, I think I was wrong. I hope I was wrong, but I I grew up thinking that I would only be loved in proportion to my good works. And so very much felt I needed to create a public utility of some kind. And Mm -hmm. being public had, I don't know, sort of a democratizing feel to it that felt good to me, that regular people with union dues and 401ks would be able to own something important. And that I would be some sort of public steward of it. It was all part of my, you know, how I wanted to see myself. I just didn't want to fail too badly at it. And so I wanted to get to where I could be pretty reliable quarter in and quarter out before I did it. And how did, how did it change? I mean, how did it change you? How did it change the company? I mean, I ran that company for 22 years from my basement of a split level ranch in Lincoln on Codman Road all, all the way to, you know, decent sized market cap, $6 billion market cap and 5,000 employees. And so I had a constantly evolving experience of what my job was. I mean, I had one business card over the 22 years, but totally different jobs. And it was sensational. I mean, I just absolutely loved, I did not love my last year there, but looking back on it, you know, even just only two years hence, I, I loved that too. Like nothing like a really serious beatdown, you know, <laughs> felt like I got to be on Fight Club, you know, a little bit, although I didn't really get to throw many swings. So I, I thought it was sensational. 
We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with Jonathan Bush. Welcome back to News Items and my interview with Jonathan Bush. John, let's talk about the takeover that ultimately led to your departure. Elliott Management took a 9% stake in Athena Health, staging an activist takeover. Can you walk our listeners through what happens when an activist investor targets a company? Barely. I didn't know what an activist was, except for, so I had this vision of, you know, Nelson Peltz buying and trying to move American can company out of Greenwich, you know, or something, <laughs> which seemed like an eminently reasonable point of view, you know, right. like there's people in Greenwich making cans, like still, or Briggs and Stratton engines and, you know, Bridgeport, Connecticut. Had no idea that an activist would be interested in something whose average growth rate top line organically was 30% a year. But the basic strategy is you go to where you think you can generate some kind of event that will create a, a short-term bump in the equity value, typically a sale. And so right. you go into a place where you think you can make a, a thesis for a sale. Generally, if you think about it, the share price of a stock is what the least interested guy in the company is willing to take for it, right? right. To buy a company, you got to go to the 51% least interesting. You need to get all the way to the median guy and have him be interested in selling. And on average, his price is about 25% higher than that last marginal guy, right? Right. right. And so all you got to do is force that board to force the price over to that median guy and there's 25%. And CEO's a bomb, company's obsolete, you know, doesn't work as a public company. These are the theses, but it really doesn't matter as long as they get a 25% bump. And I believe that's kind of what they got, except for in this case, they ended up the buyer. They inadvertently, I think, I don't know, I don't want to tell them their business, but maybe by being quite so bloody, they scared away buyers and so ended up having to buy it themselves in order to hold the thesis up right? and then turn it into a cash machine, which they have done, I'm told. So what was Elliott Management's case on why the company should be sold? Basically, the thesis was it should be sold because Bush is a bum, the boards are bum, the you know, boards weak or whatever. And then they went about building the Bush bum case, which was no fun if you're Bush, especially if you know that you've been making tons of mistakes for all 22 of your years running the company. (laughs) Because you're like, take a number. Like, which one do you want? You want the personnel mistakes, the strategy mistakes, the financing mistakes? Fully 30% of the senior executives that I hired were bums, you know, or not bums, but didn't work for long enough and had to be traded out. And, you know, one of my investors said, well, Usually it's 50, you know, so I thought, it was, <laughs> thought that was a good thing. Uh, but when viewed through Elliott Capital PowerPoint, it didn't look so good. You know, trying to draw young, restless engineers and product managers out of tech and into healthcare caused me to generate kind of a fun party. This is where the action is persona, which led right. to all kinds of traffic on Instagram and things like that, which, you know, when then viewed cynically, you know, wonderful case could be made that I'm immature. And of course I am immature. I mean, I'm all the things that are wrong as are, I believe, all people in their own way. And then the last beauty of the thing is that if you're candid and honest and you're not willing to just say, no, it's all a lie, you know, (laughs) 
you know, they'll pick a little bit of truth and a little bit of lie. You're going to try to get in there and say, well, actually that lie was, that's a lie, but these other four things are actually true. And in fact, there's a fifth one that they forgot. That's even worse. You know, I mean, we're, if you're trying your hardest to create something that doesn't exist, there's blood all over the place, blood and poop and snot and tears and sweat. And of course, if somebody goes and picks through it, there'll be plenty to make a case. I was a little surprised that the board and shareholders didn't laugh it off, but there had been two restatements, which I think it scared people related to changing CFOs. And uh, I don't know, maybe that, or maybe they just, there's an interesting phenomenon with Elliot where they've got this wolf pack. They call themselves the wolf pack of special situation investors who once they see Elliot buys, they buy. And they right. buy in the anticipation of that 25% bump. Now, they missed the first piece, but maybe they only get 13% of it, right? right. Pretty good, right? Yep. But they're going to vote with Elliot. So suddenly, these shareholders that I've known for 20 years represent a lot less of the company than they did a minute ago. And the stock price they're carrying has got some anticipation of Elliot winning in it. So right. to be loyal to me, they got to be willing to go backwards on their own portfolio for a while. Oh, right. God. And then the bad news about John Bush. Every day, you know, another thing. Oy vey. So I don't blame them, I guess, in the end. And I got to do new things, which was kind of fun. Once you were out, what did you do? How did you feel? I mean, <laughs> you built this incredible company. Uh, you've taken it to, you know, a $6 billion market cap out of a basement in Lincoln, Massachusetts. And now suddenly you're driving kids to school or whatever. What were the last two years like? Marvelous. You know, first there was just the relief when Jeff Immelt came to my house with a cup of Dunkin' Donuts to fire me. I had finally gotten permission to respond. I got everybody to agree that we'll tape an interview so I can respond to some of these things. Right. So it'll either be all in or all out, but Jeff, who was our chairman or whatever, would be allowed to decide. But at least I could try because I was right. just sitting there, you know, woo, the beatdowns and the, and the I just felt like literally nothing, say nothing. Like, are you kidding me? I'm not a say nothing type for starters, you know? And then on that day, before I went to the airport, he came and let me go. And I remember the feeling of just, I wanted to hug him, just the relief that (laughs) it would stop for a minute. You know, I mean, obviously no comparison, but those guys are, you know, sign the confession, sign the, boom, sign the confession, boom. No, I'm not going to, God save our, boom, sign the confession. Okay, fine, I'll sign it. I'll sign it. That's the way I felt. But I didn't have to sign it. They just shot me. And then I, I made it with my dignity intact and I was free. And so I had that for about two days. And then I was massively resentful and lost about, I probably nine months of sleep. Oh, wow. A lot of great books on tape. The gentleman from Moscow who suffered more ignominy yes. than I did and was elegant and creative with it all. And I thought I'm going to be elegant and creative and help a little girl become an apparatchik. And, you know, I'm going to use this. And then I went back to being angry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I picked up golf. You'll be glad to know. I immediately go. uh, got golf clubs FedEx to the island that we go to in Maine and I stayed there all summer murdering grass. But eventually the pain wore off and I stopped waking up with a shudder, remembering this or that thing I had said or done or decision I had made. And I got to enjoy not feeling obligated to the people I'd been obligated to for 22 years. Because the nice thing about being fired from something you care about deeply is you don't have to worry about the people. Like they fired you. you. You don't have to like 
go to the committee or help with the sale or, you know, you're really free, free, like no meetings free. Right. And that was interesting. And then, of course, little by little, some brave soul asked me to be on his board. And I'm like, do you know who you're talking to? Here? Like, <laughs> you know, I know. I know. With three to two in favor of making you this offer on the board. Oh, <laughs> great. Thanks. I'll take it. <laughs> and then, you know, little by little, a board member's calls. Hey, how you doing? You know, and a couple board members have since made, you know, contact and said, boy, that was tough for all of us. And, and then life fills back in and you have the wisdom of the past experiences, but without the obligation. So you can build a uh, new cloth, which goes quicker. Right. And so thus at some point was born Zeus. Tell us about that, how that came together and what Zeus is about. Well, we thought that calling it Athena, who's your daddy would be inappropriate and <laughs> negative and not over the past. So we went with Zeus and then we took the E out so that it would just be Zeus or some random word that we could defend if we ever became the personal Kanban card for American health that we hope we someday become way out in the future. But the basic idea was to take the stuff inside of Athena and build it as a series of microservices that would allow wide-ranging companies to build wide-ranging EMR-like animals. I don't know if you've covered it much, but the Digital health space, the use of technology in the actual delivery of health right. has exploded. I mean, exploded. I think during COVID, $14.8 billion in venture capital went into these early stage companies, taking some narrow slice of care, figuring out how to stream it over an app rather than deliver it with pills in an exam room and instruments. And it turns out that lots and lots of care and more and more every day actually responds quite well to continuous coaching as compared with drugs and rare appointments with your knickers down on wax paper in an exam room that's hard to reach from your office. And there are now thousands, 15,000 at my last count. I don't really know the number. And they all need to keep records. They need a different thing from a traditional office-based EMR and billing system. They don't bill. Their EMRs are for narrow use cases, you know, maybe only to write one particular prescription or maybe to connect to your Fitbit and write a prescription and maybe one blood test. They're narrow scope and they needed targeted technologies. And because they're so narrow, they need to find out what else is going on with their patients and members without having to figure it out themselves. And so Zeus is it's the Build-A-Bear studio where you can build your own medical records, patient relationship management and connect it to all the data that is available on them from the rest of the health system. Now that you're established and you have, what, 50 employees and you've generated what, Andreessen Horowitz as your lead investor, I guess, as you plot to grow the company, what are the milestones? Is there like a year where you hope to be this, three years where you hope to be that? Right now we're focused on have any product at all by October. Right. <laughs> uh, so we'll start with that. So the, the first thing you'll be able to do as a digital health entrepreneur on Zeus is register a new patient. But unlike registering a new patient without Zeus, all the screens and widgets that you would need to build your own app are there so you could do it quickly. And we will actually go out in the world once you confirm you've got the right person and they confirm that we're allowed we will go get every claim that's ever been paid on them in the last three years. We'll go get all the charts. We'll go get all the labs, all the prescriptions. So day one on your app, that app knows you. Right. Uh, and you can actually see your kind of Facebook wall of 
scroll through your health story without having to fill out 842 questions with your thumbs on, you know, your new healthcare app. <laughs> That's our first goal is a national master patient index that allows us to grab an identity and fill out the forms or at least build a story, the backstory on mm -hmm. a new member for one of these digital health practices and services. Assuming that you'll get that done, and I obviously assume that you will, what would be the next step? So that's the first step down a road called patient relationship management, which is this sort of CRM for healthcare. And that's, you know, going to go, go, go. Like Shopify allows people to stand up sort of their own little Amazons. We'll allow people to stand up their own little digital health companies and big ones, hopefully. Then we'll get into what we call provider stories. So the part of the EMR that is the doctor ordering a lab or ordering a referral or ordering a prescription, those in the world of EMR are, the software may be wonderful. I certainly think Athena's is wonderful, but it isn't connected to all the labs in a way where the data stays intact. It sort of gets jumbled as it travels out into the world. So the next thing we'd like to do is start building fully integrated supply chains. Here's a little widget to drop into your physician workflow to order labs. And by the way, here's every single lab in the country and exactly how they measure the different analytes and name the different tests so that when it comes back normal from this guy, it's different from normal for that guy. And I can rationalize it with what you want to call normal for yourself. That kind of work and, you know, one for referral, one for prescription, one for lab accession. And then after that thread gets going, the next thread will be payments, some sort of post-claim Uber driver type, you know, hey, I'm a specialist. I want to quickly consult for all these new digital health companies. I don't want to have a biller. I don't want to have an office. I may not even want to have malpractice. I just want to get 60 bucks every time I do two minutes of work. One of my other companies, Firefly, has a really, really good cardiologist whose wife's got a fellowship in London. And he makes a pretty good wage just flipping through cardiology consults, making the same kind of money he was making when he actually had a practice and rent and a staff and now practice because he's just getting the work quotient. So I'd like to build out a world for people like that. That's amazing. It really is amazing. Jonathan, thank you so much for doing this. We're going to check back with you in one year and uh, see what's happened in those 12 months, I'm sure, given your abilities that you will be building yet another great company. But thank you very much for joining us. I, I love the idea that that'll be what happens. But if I'm swinging golf clubs and listening to books on tape, so be it. So be it. All right. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thanks for tuning into the News Items podcast. The podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. It's relatively inexpensive and I think well worth your time. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Bienname, Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Our recording engineer is the great Simran Singh, and we'd like to thank all the people here at Factory Underground where we actually record the podcast. We'll be back Monday afternoon with News Items. See you then.